I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of unto all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the, my brothers, have, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of self-ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, in a, in a culture that shows us to follow our own desires and our own dreams for the good of our four and no more, you've called us to deny ourselves, to follow after you, Father, for not only the good of ourselves, but the good of others, and ultimately for your glory. So with that, um, as in Jeremiah, your call is the same to us, that though we may pursue our own idols and pursue all those things that we have grown accustomed to just seeking our time and effort after, yet above all that, your call is the same, yet return to me. And so today, I pray that as we hear your word of the gospel being advanced, that you would turn in our hearts towards you that mission to share your good news, knowing that that is a story of reconciliation, reconcilement of the, the creation to the creator. And so I pray that you would help us hear those words with our ears, help us see with our eyes, help us understand with our minds, and more so help us believe with our hearts. In the name that sits above all names, in the name of Jesus, amen. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Reading and praying, setting us up. So uh, if you're our guest, we are in the book of Philippians. This is like week two, I think. And so here we are in, uh, in this second part of Philippians chapter one. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about uh, Paul finding great joy in partnership, partnering in the local church. And his great joy um, as he sat in prison was from the Philippians far away who had sent a financial practical support through their brother Epaphroditus and if you remember, like, there was no rations in prison, and so their gift not only was a great encouragement to him, but were truly his lifeline, um, because the, the government is not going to take care of him uh, like our government does for prisoners. And so because that's true, of course, he is, he's writing this letter now back to the Philippian church from a prison cell in Rome, and he has great joy over their partnership. And so that's last week, that's a little recap, but this week, now all of a sudden, we see his great joy continuing to bubble up in his circumstance, not just in the partnership of the local church in Philippi, but through his circumstance in prison. He is finding joy in the literal prison that he sits in, in the inner a sanctum dungeon where it's dank and moldy and rough, like you're not seeing the light of day. Uh, you're not going to the restroom on your own. Uh, you're chained to others that are hungry and starving and crying out and probably deserve the be, to be there, right? This is not a great place to be, and yet Paul is rejoicing. And you're thinking to yourself, or I think I thought to myself, it's great for Paul. I'm not in prison, but yet I also have a hard time rejoicing. 
And so how does all of this kind of relate to me, particularly in this first part of Philippians 1? It is, after all, Philippians 4 that is on all over uh, Hobby Lobby, as we talked about last week, not Philippians 1. But how do we take this to heart here in Philippians 1? Well, I would say, though you're not in a literal prison, many of us are in a prison that we've made for ourselves or that this world has crafted specifically for us. And so perhaps it is your job that just feels like a dead end. Feels like you're going nowhere, just sitting in a cell, a little cubicle, pushing paper here or there, and it's just not really fulfilling for you. Perhaps it's your marriage that just can't seem to get on track. Man, I just wish they were a different person. Did I marry the right person? Did I make a mistake? Maybe you've had those thoughts here in this last week. Maybe it's your kids who just can't seem to quote-unquote get it, whatever it is. Uh, Maybe it's boredom, and then you're just just in the rut of Monday to Friday. Everybody is working for the weekend, and you just can't wait to not think about it anymore, and it's just constant. The grind is truly a grind on your soul. Friends, what is God doing in those places? You ever notice that he's not in a rush? Like, I don't know about you, but my prayer life is like, what are you doing here, Lord? And he's like, not that. I can guarantee you that. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. I often wonder, why are you so late or delayed in your answer to me or in your intervention in my life? I'd like for you to, to, to go ahead and, and give me that what I wanted and on the double, on the hop, if you could. And God just is like, yeah, yeah, that's cute. That's fun. No. He is not in a rush to get us out of these prisons or these grinds that we find ourselves in. Instead, he's allowing us to stay there just like he allowed Paul to stay in prison to create in us opportunities to find joy, not in better circumstances, but in him. What would your life look like if you pursued joy, pleasure evermore, not in better circumstances, but in the Christ who came and died for you. Paul is going to help us find the way. Paul is going to help us while in prison two millennia ago. He's going to help us see how we can find joy in the mundane, in the grind, in a dead-end job, or in an unideal marriage, whatever you find yourself in. And I think the first thing that he helps us see is that we must develop a kingdom perspective. What do you mean kingdom perspective? Let's just read the first verse of this passage again. I want you to know, brothers, now friends, we are brothers and sisters. We are a part of the family of God. We have one Father in heaven, and our common big bro Jesus fought on our behalf, the big bully of Satan on the playground, defeated him once and for all, and brought us into the family so that we are brothers and sisters. If you want to know how to relate to one another, it's familially that we would be a family. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's really served to advance the gospel. See, friends, you are a part of something bigger and longer than the circumstances uh, that make up your lifetime. Paul knew that. That's why he could be in prison and rejoice, because this is just a little blip in a story that, that spans all of eternity. That's what, that's what that explanation was by Chris. 
that we're in the midst of a story. We know how this story ends, and yet here we are, and we're called to trust in the midst of a seemingly delaying God. Paul mentions this later in Philippians 3, 3 when he says that we have a citizenship not in this world, but in heaven. And from that world, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a citizenship, not in a government that is here, not in a nation that is here. It's never been that way for Christians primarily, but instead our citizenship is heavenly, celestial. And in that place, there is a king, the Lord Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, who has a purpose from beginning to end. And you may be thinking, well, what is that purpose? And it's one word from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of Genesis and Revelation, and that is redemption, that God is purchasing back for himself all that went wrong at the fall. He's bringing us back to himself, and so while we sit in that prison and we long for him to intervene, he is longing for us to return. He is longing for us to repent. He is longing for us to continue to pursue him even in the midst of trial and uncertainty. And so everything for Paul, everything for us falls into this paradigm of the kingdom, of an eternal perspective of our Father in heaven writing a story from which we sit in, but it is not finished. But the finished product is a bunch of people that look more and more like Jesus. See, Paul writes right here in the first part, and he it's very common in first century practice that when you're writing a letter to others, you give them your life situation like, hey, just so you know, this is kind of my life these days. And Paul is doing that here in this passage. When he says, hey, Philippian church, so glad that you've continued to partner with me. If you want to know how I'm doing, I'm still sitting in a cell. I'm still sitting in prison, so thank you for the gift that you've given me. But Paul goes one further, and he gives his perspective on the why of his circumstance. Don't you want to know what God's up to? Don't you want to know what he is up to in these chains that I am carrying now? And Paul says it right there at the end of verse 12. My chains, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Do you know that your circumstances really serve something else? There's a great lie in the American church, and that is God is here to serve you. Like a great vending machine or a cosmic butler. You just order it up, chop, chop, and he'll bring it right to you. God, the Bible does say that he has come to serve us by dying for us, but his primary concern is not to continually serve us and therefore make us just happy and glad, not in the world's understanding of that. No, no. Instead, he has come to help us see that our circumstances really serve something greater than our comfort and than our peace. So um, my son, who's eight, he doesn't do this as much anymore, uh, but he used to do this a lot, um, like up until like a year ago. And so he, say, he plays the would you rather game. Does your kid do this? Like, would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And for a while, like, the way that Moses would play the game is he would go, like, hey, would you rather have your ankle cut off or, like, eat jelly beans? And I'm like, I'm going to go with jelly beans, my man. Like, but as he's gotten a little bit more educated in the world, like, would you rather be eaten by an alligator or a shark? I'm like, oh, man, I don't know, actually. Both involve drowning, which is terrible. I, but one probably involves chewing, and I, I don't know if I want that. And so i got to really reason through the terrible scenarios 
that he's putting me through. Um, and of course, he's just like, well, it's obviously this. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. Well, you got a, you got a good thought. But, but here's the deal. Like, would you rather, not just jelly beans or ankles, that's, that seems simple, but, but truly, I think there's, there's this really would you rather game that maybe, maybe we need to ask ourselves, would we rather get comfort but grow distant from Jesus? Or would we rather continue the grind, but the grind draws us near to him? Would you rather like, be in prison but be really close to Jesus? Or would you rather be set free and you never think of him? And oftentimes we don't like the, 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 the binary world that we're kind of in, but sometimes it just sets us straight to be like, man, if I have to choose, I'm going to choose suffering with Jesus than a peaceful life without him. But do we? In our, in our prayer life and in our circumstances, is that truly our preference? Is that truly our desire or do we want escape? Uh, the kingdom perspective provides rest for all of us if we will know that our Father is providing for us even while, we, uh, while he allows us to be uncomfortable. Because our ultimate hope is not in smooth circumstances, but in the God of all circumstances. So I wonder, can you see failure in the thing that you really wanted? But not failure, after all, in God's eyes, because it's success as God wanted it. Can you see how difficulty in your marriage is drawing you close to your Savior? Can you see how your job is truly a means to an end and not a means unto fulfillment? See, kingdom perspective helps us see that our life is in service to God, that God is not wholly in service to us. So Paul brings explanation as to why things happen, and then he helps us understand that suffering becomes palatable, discomfort becomes palatable when we realize that our loss may be someone else's gain. You see, that's what he says, that this is really served to advance the gospel. And he goes on to say this, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And my, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without field. So what is this thing that our life is in service to? Paul would say his imprisonment is for the advancement of the gospel. He goes on to say in the end of verse 16 where he says, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The fruit of Paul's suffering is the expansion of God's kingdom. The fruit of your suffering may be the advancement of God's kingdom. You see, for Paul, it was this imperial guard, right? It says right there, I don't know about you, but I think of the, the evil empire in Star Wars, the imperial guard. And that's certainly what, what pro, not the Star Wars part of this, but like the imperial guard meaning the Roman army. If you look and do a word study on this, it's the praetorium. If you go even further into that word, it's the, government, the, the governor's personal guard. What could be the emperor's personal guard? Are you hearing what God is saying through this? And for Paul, it's, hey man, the people that are in charge of all the suffering, of all the people of, of Israel during this time, are hearing the good news of Jesus through my imprisonment. They know 
They know that I'm not here because I broke a law. They know that I'm here because I proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's the only reason why I'm here. They know me well enough. They've been around me for long enough to know where I stand in Christ. And I wonder, friends, if what are we willing to endure so that the gospel might advance through us? What about that prison that you're in? What about that marriage that you're in where, where the other person just seems so distant from God? Could it be that you're there to proclaim the gospel? What about that job that you can't get out of and don't want to really leave? And if you kind of mess up here or there, or they're abusing you in one way verbally, and you're like, man, but what is God doing in this place? What are we willing to endure so that others might come to know Jesus? Now, in American Christianity and suburbia, this is not necessarily something that we think about, that we're, we're actually called to suffer. We're actually called, and we will be persecuted in some ways for our faith. And so I just want to draw out for us for some realities that, that were certainly true for them, and, and I think that we've distanced ourselves from, but maybe we, we don't need to do that. So the first century church, the great persecution that they had was when they said, Jesus is Lord. If you don't know that, that was treason. It was treason against Caesar who commanded that everyone call Caesar Lord, Savior, Master. So all the Christians are coming on the earth, and of course this is part of what they start to come against Jesus with and come against Paul with. If they're saying, hey, they're teaching things that go against Roman law here. They're proclaiming that Jesus is Caesar. He is Lord. Not that Caesar is Caesar and that he is Lord. And all of a sudden, the Roman government has to go, well, hold on now. Well, you, you starting a treasonous uprising here? And so it's no wonder that they keep Paul in prison for years. So one of they did to Jesus what they did to Jesus because all of a sudden they saw it as a political uprising. And, and so when, when we declare Jesus as Lord, maybe it's not our government that is coming against us in some ways, but maybe it is. I want us to just think about this. Every single one of us have opportunities in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our social circles, where we have opportunity to declare Jesus as Lord of our lives, whether it be in word or in deed. No, man, I'm not going to go there for happy hour. Like, that's not honoring to my Lord. No, I mean, I'm not going to fudge those books. It's just not honoring to my Lord. I'm not going to do this because it's not honoring to my Lord. Not just because I'm a Christian, because it actually, it's blasphemy against the name of Jesus. Some of us hold licenses that are for our profession where the government will not allow you to proselytize. What will you do in the moment when someone needs to hear the gospel? Will we declare Jesus as Lord and say, come what may? Some of us have HR departments. We're like, hey man, heard you've been sharing the gospel. I'm going to need you to pull that, pull that out of whatever world you're in and put that on hush. What will you do in those moments when your HR department starts to lord over you? When Jesus is calling him, you to do the same with him. What will you do in those moments? You know, that's, that's truly how Caesar is lord in these days and ages. Whom will we obey? Will we honor God or will we honor man? And you're thinking to yourself right now, well, that's easy for you to say. I mean, you're a pastor. These things aren't really, you know, you don't really have anything. 
that you're going to lose if you declare the gospel. I'll lose some friends. I've lost many friends through the declaration of the gospel in my life. And you're right. It is easier. But you know, my wife's a teacher. She has a certification from the state that says you cannot do this. And I would encourage her and I would encourage you just the same. So be it. They fire you for declaring the gospel. So be it. And we go, okay, well, I don't know if that really means that for me today. It was really for Paul in prison, you see. Okay, well, let's just flip over to Luke. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 19. Does this apply to you? Jesus' words? This is going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy this. This is good. Luke 21. It's going to come off the screen if you didn't flip there. That's fine. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Ooh, an encouraging sermon from Jesus. Verse 12. But before all this, I want you to note the certain language that Jesus is speaking here. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, because you believe in me. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You want to know how we're going to bear witness? Some of us will be brought before governments, before religious leaders that disagree with us, who want to persecute us and snuff out the name of Jesus in every institution across the land. And Jesus is saying, and that's going to be the time. That's going to be your opportunity to bear witness about me. Let's, let's keep going. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate or rehearse beforehand how to answer. Are y'all hearing this? Well, I don't know what I'm going to say if I, if I get in front of these people and I have to bear witness to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, settle it beforehand not to continue to rehearse about this. Why? Oh, Jesus is going to answer you. For I will give you, I will give you a mouth. Okay, I'll give you the words, and I'll give you the wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents, y'all. It's going to get cutthroat. And brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will even put to death. It will happen. You will be hated. For all my name's sake, but not of your, a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. You hear the certainty in which Jesus is speaking here? Now, we don't think about our Christian life costing our lives. And I've brought it up before. I'm going to bring it up again. This is my last time today to bring it up. But if you're not watching the current season of The Chosen, I don't know what you're doing with your life. 
Because there's a scene in like the second or third episode where he's sending his disciples out, and it's like 15 minutes long where they're dialoguing about what that's going to mean, and I don't know what to do, and what do you mean you're going to send us away, and you're sending us two by two, and I got to go with the tax collector, and I got to go with the zealot, and I don't want to do, are you kidding, Jesus, you got to make this more clear to me, is this not us? And then he says, and some of you will die. For the first time, they hear those words, and they start to look at each other, and he goes, but this trip is not about that. I have much more to teach to you about this. Friends, like, have we so insulated ourselves in suburbia that our life truly isn't on the line, everyone? Like, and it, maybe it's not our life. Okay. Our government's not out to get us. But our livelihood, have we so continued to, well, it's what Jesus said, right? You can't serve both money and God. And so I just wonder if this particular part here, if we, would, if we would truly understand that our lives, our sufferings, we will be persecuted. We will have enemies. Our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers will turn their backs on us. So we can't continue to look for comfort and peace in every relational situation. Jesus promised it wouldn't be there. Not if we're going to be loyal to him. And so maybe this isn't a today word. And you go, man, everything's good in my life. Like, should I just go stir up trouble? No. But if they try to silence you, and you're given to that, maybe we should heed the words of Jesus. Maybe we should heed the words of Paul. He says, you know what? Come what may. I'm going to be faithful to my king. I'm going to be faithful to my God. And I was talking with somebody this week where a particular uh, charity would not allow them to proselytize. And he goes, so you're telling me that I can never share the gospel with people that we reach through partnering together in these ministries. And they said, never. And they said, so what happens five years from now when we see this person on the street? We've served them. We got to know you during this collaboration. But five years from now, we see them on the street. Can we evangelize to them then? And they said, never. And they said, fine, we'll find another partner. I mean, that's the kind of loyalty that God desires from us. Whether we're afraid of government or we're afraid of other people, the Lord has said in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, that's how Jesus can say you're going to die, but not a hair on your head will perish. Though may they, they may kill the body, they could never kill the soul. Don't be afraid of them. They can only destroy your body. But I'm the one that preserves the soul forever, Jesus would say. Our priorities are completely out of whack, and he calls us to continue to trust him. So what if you lose your job because you spoke the word without fear? Not only is the praetorium hearing the gospel, but also the second reality in Paul's life that he's so rejoicing over is that because he's been put in prison and he can't share the gospel over and over and over again, he's in prison. What has that happened? Some of the best leadership techniques that we see throughout the New Testament is that the main leader disappears for one reason or another. Jesus goes up into heaven, and it requires all the disciples to go, I guess it's up to us now. Paul gets put in prison, and the rest of the brethren, he says, speak the word without fear. Notice he doesn't use big language like preach. No, no, he just says, say it. Notice he doesn't say big language like gospel. He just says the word. So whatever God has spoken to you, perhaps it's an opportunity for you then to speak to others. 
without fear. That's the, that's, the, that's the hindrance, isn't it? That we're afraid. We're afraid of the government, what, might, what they might do to us, garnish our wages or take away our job. We're afraid of the HR department, what they might do to us. They'll take away our job that we've, we've built our life around. We're afraid of what our family members and our friends will say to us or post about us online or get in a group text without us and cut us out of their lives. We're afraid of these things. The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. So what if you lose your reputation? What if you're seen as foolish, as incompetent? What if you do lose that friend or that job, but someone gains a father? Someone gains life for eternity through your loss. Would it be worth it? Paul says, I mean, I'm counting this baby all joy. All joy. Isn't that what he says throughout Philippians 1.21? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Doesn't he say it again in 3.7? But whatever gain I had, whatever beautiful life I had in the suburbs, I counted as loss for the sake of of following and knowing and being loved by Jesus. May we not just think, oh, how admirable, Paul. But may we be set on fire by these loyalties that are put before us. You see, we've got to have, we've got to have some loyalty to kingdom expansion, the way that God is orchestrating our lives, that these things serve something greater than ourselves. We've got to have this kingdom perspective, and then finally, that we would pursue kingdom collaboration. And this is like a hard left turn, at least in the scriptures. Because 12 through 14 make all the sense. And then he goes, and also, there's some people out there that preach Christ out of rivalry. You ever wonder, like, what's that about? Like, Christ being preached out of rivalry and out of jealousy and out of selfish ambition. Can you do such a thing? Apparently you can. Let's read it, and then we'll understand it. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, competition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? And he says, like, basically, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. More joy from Paul in the midst of hardship. Here's the situation. Paul's in prison. Now remember, if you don't know this, Rome is a church that Paul did not plant. Okay? So there's some realities about this church. I can preach for longer in this church than someone else, even Chris or Kobe or Josue or what Aaron used to go. Like, they can't preach as long as me. Why? Because you guys subconsciously give me more leash because I'm the planter. I'm the lead pastor. You just do. So I tell people that come and preach, hey, bro, like, don't go past that mark. If you do, they're going to turn off, and it's nothing personal. They're just not giving you what they give me. Same thing for Paul. When he planted churches, the churches that he planted would give him a bit more leash. Rome was not one of those churches. So he writes the book of Romans, a letter to a church that he did not plant, and he, he supposes apostolic authority over them, and he basically writes for 16 chapters about how you Jews and you Gentiles who are making up the Roman church ought to get along. 
We know that things are different according to the Jewish tradition. We know that things are different according to the Gentile Roman tradition. But at some point, you're going to have to bear with one another and show genuine love to one another. That's like the whole point of the book of Romans. It's a church that he didn't plant. So now he's in that very city, and he's not preaching anymore. He's in prison. And so there's other pastors that are in the area, and they're going, oh, no, you're still giving your money to Paul? Yeah, you know he's in prison, right? I don't know if you know this. We have a thriving ministry just down the street, great children's programs, awesome worship, dynamic preacher. And if you'd like, you just come over here and give your 10% here. Oh, now it's starting to hit home. That the competitive spirit amongst churches is alive and well. You don't know this. When we started this church, it wasn't welcomed by everyone. And when we started the church, there were two kinds of people. The pastors that were like, you're doing what and where? And I remember asking like other pastors that had been in the area for decades. And he goes, bro, here's the reality, man. There's a spirit of competition in Fort Bend County that I don't experience anywhere else. This is true. Rivalry. Envy. Selfish ambition. And friends, it's not just them. Me too. There are times when I don't feel like it. There are times when I just go, man, I don't know about that. There are times where I see maybe people that are even leaving here in the past. And I'm like, dude, I just don't think that's good for you. Why? Who am I to say? Are these not the Lord's sheep? Am I not just an under-shepherd? And I'm not the over-shepherd? No, he is. So there is competitive things going on. There is rivalry. There is envy. There is that even amongst, even here locally, Fort Bend County. That's a reality, right? That some are preaching Christ, but with motives for them to hurt Paul. He's in prison. Don't support him anymore. He doesn't have God's blessing on him. Just look at his situation. So there is an equivalent here of pushing local churches as better than one another for us for reasons like worship and kids programs and awesome pastors and whatever. But I need to be clear because the scripture is clear here. Paul is modeling out for us how to deal with two different types of people and two different types of leaders. He is not showing grace to false teachers. Those that push a different gospel in, say, Galatians, he says they are preaching a different gospel altogether. Those that add works to Jesus, whether it be circumcision or baptism or whatever it may be, no, no, that's a different gospel. So he, you need to be clear. This, we're not talking about uh, 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 like, like-minded brethren when we start talking about false teachers. False teachers, the Bible is really clear, are going to be condemned to hell. That's a serious reality. Prosperity gospel is right underneath false teaching. Those that say words like Jesus and Father and church and gospel, though fly under the banner of cults, we need to be very careful about how we, how we engage conversations with them because they are not at the same table as us. This is not the same gospel. No, but, but for those that are brethren, those that are preaching the same gospel, that's what he says, preaching Christ. That's what's important, preaching Christ. And so he tells us, hey, like, you need to make a distinction here. What kind of ministry are they running? Is it one that is about people and management and control, or is it one where we are pursuing the preaching of Christ? 
He recognizes, Paul, their motives as competitive and jealous, but he is not controlled by that impurity, and he rejoices that Christ is preached. So there were two reactions when we were planting this church. One was competitiveness, and one was collaboration. So I'm going I'm to not call out the competitive ones, but I am going to exhort the collaborative ones. I don't know if you know Randy Beck, but when we moved in and Water's Edge was just down the road, and some of you have come from Water's Edge, when Water's Edge was just down the road, and I remember calling Randy, having lunch with Randy, and saying, hey, brother, thank you for meeting me for about church planting. Um, what if this is right in your backyard? And he goes, like, are you okay with that? Because, like, man, I got to tell you, my experience with others, they're just not okay with it. Where, where, you, where do you land? Just honest opinion. Oh, I respect you. I will honor you. I will defer to you. And he goes, brother, we need more gospel expressions in this area to reach all the people that live here. Whew. And then he sold us the trailer for like pennies on the dollar, the trailer that we have, along with most of the things in it, because he saw kingdom collaboration as the main priority for all of this. Now, here's the reality. Water's Edge basically folded and it merged with a different church. Now, he could be real super bitter with me because we took some people. It, it prevented his church, his kingdom, from expanding and growing. You know, we still sit in the same room. We still collaborate with Waypoint Church now. They're still going to do one weekend with us in a few weeks. We still have a, a deep brotherhood that when we see each other, we got to pry one another away from the conversation because it's like two hours in the parking lot. It's like, I don't know, man, we got to go. We still have a heart to love one another. Why? Because Christ is preached in Waypoint as it was Water's Edge, as it is in the Grove, and that is our priority. So we rejoice, friends. When people can leave here and they go down to whatever church down the road, we rejoice now. It's hard. It may not be the first part, first step of where we're going, but that's the end journey, isn't it? We rejoice. In as much as they come here, right? What is our posture then, friends, towards other churches? How about when they switch neighborhood groups? And they go, the time's really not working for me. And then they join another neighborhood group that's basically at the same time. Aren't they really saying, I really want to do life with you? You cool with that? May we rejoice. Let us rejoice in the fact that they are pursuing Christ, though it may hurt personally, just like it did for Paul. May we rejoice. Maybe they, they grow in grace in those relationships where they couldn't grow with you. Maybe their kids have a connection that they didn't have with your kids. May we rejoice. They find a, a reason in a way that they're in a community. A loving community is going to challenge them, encourage them to follow Jesus, proclaim Christ to their neighbors and to the nations. May we rejoice and maybe not get caught up in the off-brand reality of sheep swapping. Like, who cares? I'm over it. Let's go make disciples. And if you end up going to the other church, awesome. We are not in competition, but in collaboration, even if they do ministry. And this is the hard part for me, y'all. Even when they put a podcast out, about how terrible that ministry is. That they proclaim Christ. 
Yes, they're doing it out of selfish and competitive and rivalry spirits, and yet Paul rejoiced, and so the challenge is that we may rejoice and find priority that Christ is being preached. So this ends here with this last question. The greatest wounds that Paul had while in prison were by other Christian leaders. I would see, it seems to indicate for me some of the greatest wounds in your Christian walk will be from people who lead you. And either we run then from any authority and we start things like house churches. It's fine. It can be really good. Or we find a way to wrestle through those wounds and maybe you still start a house church and that's rooted in good things. Or you find a way to submit to authority because that's ultimately what Christian life is about. You know that? You know life is all about submission? I know we just like do a whole series. It would bring in the masses if we just called it submission. Put it on the banner outside. Submission this Sunday. That would be fun. All the dudes are showing up. The Christian life is about submitting to our Lord and King Jesus. Like, that's what this is truly about. And so, like, will we get to the point where we can submit to imperfect people that might wound us along the way? Forgive them, because Christ has preached in their life. When they say dumb things on a Sunday, not that that ever happens. Y'all ever been in a room where the pastor said something dumb, like maybe a week ago? And you look at him and go, that was, that was an idiot move. Yeah, he agrees. Right? What will you do in that moment? Sever all ties and connections because they didn't say something the way you hoped that they would say it? Seems to be the thing. Forgive. Ask for repentance and forgiveness. Prioritize Christ being preached. Not just in word, but in ways. It's not enough to just say the right things. We've got to live the right way. Hold your leaders accountable. Encourage them in the faith. Pray for them daily. I'm asking you to pray for me when I say them. Because without our spiritual vitality, none of this matters. What will you do with the prison in which you find yourself in? What will you do when the leader that you are under, and I do say under their care, disappoints you? Let's pray. Our God and King, may we not be a people of a bunch of marathon runners who run and hide from fueled by wounds and disappointment. And may we be leaders, and may the next person that we hire, we're deep in that process, months now. Protect us from a leader that would preach Christ out of rivalry. Provide a leader that would preach Christ sincerely in words and ways. May they model it out for us. May I model it out for, for everyone. And may we put aside petty differences, even false accusations against our character. That we prioritize the preaching of the gospel in our heart and in our mind, in our lives. 
May we endure suffering well. May we, may we not run from persecution. May we not run towards it. But let us not set up a, a life that is just so safe that we never endure any hardship. Convict us, O oh Lord, from those pursuits. You know, none of this is possible, O oh Lord, without the daily reminder that we cannot and will not achieve a righteousness on our own through good behavior. But that we can only be right with a God who is right by trusting in the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross in your life through your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I pray that we would get so caught up in that story the story that we know how it's going to end, end with the redemption, the full redemption of our bodies, the full redemption of our souls, the full redemption of everything that has gone wrong in this fallen world. It's going to be bought back and brought back into alignment with the King who is good. Help us, O oh Lord, walk with conviction that you're the only thing that matters. Not a good life without you, but a great life with you. May we develop discernment as we walk. May we develop grace as we walk with you. And may we rejoice when you are exalted above all names, including our own. In Christ's name do we pray, amen.